0: Hi, welcome to the Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I'm dealing with a book today that has made a big difference in my life, and I bet it would in yours, or maybe it already has. It's called Decision Making and the Will of God. Author is Gary Friesen, who's academic dean at Multnomah School of the Bible up in Portland, Oregon. And the key question here is, does God have a perfect will for every Christian? In other words, is there a blueprint somehow for every person's life, step-by-step, day-to-day, all major decisions. And so I wanted to start actually with a foreword by an author uh, who is talking about Friesen's book. His name is Hadley. See if I get the name right here. um, Haddon Robinson. Here's what he says. How can I know the will of God? He said, maybe we're asking the wrong question. He said, there's no place where the scripture commands us to find God's will for most of life's choices, and he says there's no passage that tells us how to do that. And he says the Christian community on top of this has never agreed on how God would provide us with this special individual revelation. He says, except we're really going like crazy, searching all over for it. He says that what Friesen is really doing is instead of asking the question, how do I find the will of God? Friesen is basically saying, how do I make good decisions? And so that, that's kind of the key of the whole book. And Robinson says, if you read through this book, it'll get rid of two crippling extremes. And I've seen this in people. One is they want to do the right thing, but they haven't found specifics yet that are pushing them the right way from God. So they delay and they vacillate. And so nothing ever gets decided. The other problem can be impulsive judgments where they just leap into something. So Robinson ends up in his... uh, introduction it says the bible does not provide a map for life only a compass all right and then gary freeson himself has an intro and he says most christians really have a difficult time trying to figure out what the will of god is it's it's not that they don't know what to do but after they followed the right steps they're just not getting that clear picture and he said as a result he's met so many believers they get frustrated they know god loves them they know they love god they've They know they've got to find this plan that God has set up for them, but they can't find it. It seems dark. So Friesen says, God does guide his people, but the question is, how does he do this guiding? So Friesen tells his story about these decisions that he scratched around with, tried to find. He said, why it had been so hard for him to find God's will? He sought it. And even after he made decisions, he didn't really feel like he'd made the right decision. He wasn't sure. And he says, this is not unique. He's hearing this from so many Christians. He said, meanwhile, this subject of guidance, uh, finding God's will, that ranks right up among the most uh, interesting questions that people want to know. And he says, pretty much over the last several decades, the instruction about this subject has remained pretty uniform. There's been one answer that's given over and over again. So he calls that the traditional view. So part one of his book, Friesen's book, again, that's Decision-Making and the Will of God, he surveys that traditional view. What, what do they say? How do you find the will of God for your life, the special blueprint just for you? In part two, then he critiques that view with the Bible verses that are used and shows some of the problems with them. His third section then develops an alternate approach and I would just call it, and he calls it the wisdom model. And then f- part four, the last section of the book, he takes those principles and applies them to specific important decisions. So that's the, the big outline of this book. I thought we could look at a section here that talks about finding that will of God. And so what does it look like? Now, everybody agrees that God has a sovereign will. That, that's where he, we don't know it necessarily, but he's working behind the scenes regarding the big pictures like nations and the way everything is going to go on a grand scale. And there's a moral will of God, You know, things that we're supposed to do to maintain a holy life. But the question is, does God have a plan for my life? That small area that he can focus on just for you, the person to marry, the car to buy, the house to live in, those kinds of things. And so the question is, gee, how do we discover that individual will of God? Well, he says, we've got a problem. And he says, he, at first, when he was young, he thought everybody else was doing very well. Because he said that's all he heard. There, there was this traditional view that there's this individual will of God and here are the steps that you can take. And he said, God is supposed to clearly do that and come up with that. But he finally says, it didn't happen. It didn't happen to me. And it didn't happen to a lot of people. And so he wants to talk in this chapter. This will be chapter, let's see, I've got to find it here, chapter seven. He focuses on the problems, the various problems of this traditional view when it's carried out. Experiencing, uh, you know, people experience this when they try to do that traditional view finding the will of God. First is, very simple, he says, you can't do it. He says at some point everyone, and he uh, italicizes that, he stresses that, everyone abandons that traditional view to make decisions. He says, well, it's pretty easy to check out during the past week. What percentage of the decisions that you made Did you have certainty of knowing God's will in advance? Like what? Well, how about the route that you took to work? Where you sat in church? Which shoe you put on first? What fruit you select at the grocery store? He said, you know, in those small, seemingly unimportant decisions, there doesn't seem to be any specific guidance. So Christians kind of ignore that. But he says, you know, it's in those small decisions that shows you the inadequacy of that traditional view. Virtually all Christians make those choices based on what seems best to them at the time. But that doesn't square with the teaching of the traditional view. So that's kind of odd. He says, you know, people are believing one way, but they're living another. So he said, these ordinary decisions are separated from the important decisions. So what are the important ones? He said, you could kind of draw a line. So the important ones would be these. Who should I marry? Should I go to school? And if so, what school? Where should I live? What vocation should I have? What kind of car to buy? He said, those are the biggies. And then there's a line drawn. And under that line, here are the ones that you use good judgment. What do you wear? What, what are you going to have for lunch? How do you get to work? Where am I going to sit in the class? Where should I buy, buy gas? But he said, you know, if that doctrine proves to be unworkable at the level of small decisions, so it has to be abandoned, he said, something's wrong. So he says, that's the first problem. The decision-making process has to be abandoned for these minor decisions of life. Here comes the second problem. He says, this is, uh, diff- adds difficulty. In many of the choices we make, two or more of the options seem to be pretty equal in value. So the traditional view can't really recognize truly equal alternatives, like the shoes, like the socks, like cars. There are a lot of good cars out there, a lot of good houses. But the traditional view says, no, there's got to be one better than the other. And he gave an example in his own life about choosing between two schools. And they're pretty much the same. So he said, you get people that get stymied and they get frustrated. So number one problem, you have to abandon that decision-making process in the minor decisions of life. Here's problem number two with it. If you insist there's only one correct choice, you get a lot of anxiety. Because there are a lot of good choices out there. Here's a third problem. He spends quite a bit of time on this. With the traditional view, it doesn't reckon with the immaturity on the part of the decision maker. So he gives examples like, what if you have two young believers and they announce that God's revealed in their heart that he wants them to get married? Well, what if they're immature? How how do you argue with them? He says that if the final determining factor is based on the conviction that God told me to do it, You're kind of done. There's not much else you can say at that point. And he says, see, the problem is the traditional view teaches there's one ideal choice. And God gives the final guidance to whom? To that specific person. So you, as an onlooker, watching this person making a bad choice, you can't go up and say, no, that's not the correct choice. You're going to say, God told me. So there's no court of appeal. If God has told them, then you're challenging God. In the sense, but he said the f- matter of fact is that sincere Christians do make bad decisions. So he says, if the act isn't forbidden in scripture, so somebody wants to marry two women, let's say, or something like that, but if that's pretty easy to tackle, allowing, but if the act isn't forbidden in scripture and the believer is convinced God's guiding them, you can't discuss it. You can't argue with God. So it says it becomes com- really confounded when Christians justify bad behavior by announcing that it's God's decision, God's decision, not theirs. And so it actually encourages immaturity. It it provides a means of defending bad behavior. Oh, I I had to do it because that's what God told me to do. So he says, uh, they call it sometimes waiting on the Lord when you're trying to get that thing decided. And he says, you may end up with a lot of delay and you've lost a lot of time as a result. And uh, he says, these are problems. He says, then there's that whole thing about uh, the phone and fleecing, right? Fleece, uh, putting a fleece out. If somebody answers you uh, when you call them up, that means one thing. If the phone rings and rings and nobody answers, that means something else. So there's that fleece method. And he said, this seems uh, pretty silly. So he said, the traditional view promotes immature decisions. Why? Well, it it allows people to justify unwise decisions. And it ends up fostering long delays. And it influences people to reject personal preferences with, when there are equal options. They'll sometimes say, no, I, I want to do that, but I bet God doesn't want me to. And it encourages people to put out a fleece, letting circumstances dictate the decision. What happens when you make a phone call, for example. So let's add up those three things so far. What are some of the application difficulties of the traditional view? You have to abandon it when you're doing minor decisions. Sometimes there are equal options. And the third one, the one he spent a lot of time on, is immaturity. Sometimes that logic promotes immature approaches to decision-making. He's got one more difficulty, and he calls it the problem of subjectivity. So I'm going to do a little bit of that one. So that's chapter eight. It's called Impressions Are Impressions. He says, we've got a problem. It's non-verifiable subjectivity he says this touches a lot of religious experience. And he says, here we go, here's the problem. In the area of decision-making and the will of God, if you don't have an objective source of knowledge, that creates a tremendous weakness. Now, where do we get objective sources for knowledge about God's will, His word, and direct revelation? But the traditional view doesn't claim that God's will may be learned from either of these sources. Right? You're going to get them from those fleeces. You're going to get them from hints and nudges. But you're not going to get them from his word or direct revelation. The Bible only reveals God's moral will, but his ideal will is more specific, that individual will. And you're not expecting verbal communication by God. So what you're going to see is the traditional view relies almost entirely on subjective elements. So we've, we've gotten rid of the objective sources of knowledge. That would be his word and direct revelation. So what are we left with? Subjective elements about his will. And that creates a huge dilemma. How can that traditional view obtain certain knowledge of God's individual will without an objective source of knowledge? The answer is you can't. So he says, how can I know God's will for sure in a specific situation? And Friesen says, you cannot. For if your source of knowledge is subjective, then the knowledge will be subjective. And what's the result of that? It's going to be uncertain. So he says, uh, this could be a problem. He says, uh, let's think about again the traditional view for God's will. Well, you have the indwelling of the Spirit and he's supposed to be leading us. And so sometimes the traditionalists will say, well, it's that still small voice, the inner voice, inward pressure, inward urging, the guiding impulse, guiding impression and things like that. But, The inner impression is supposed to be so crucial to this process. These impressions can be really, really vague. So a crucial question at this point, how can I tell whether these impressions are actually from God or from some other source? He said, this is a huge question. You can have impressions produced by all sorts of sources. Yes, it could be God, but could it be Satan? Obviously. Could it be an angel, a demon? Yeah. What about human emotions? Can they give you an impression, like maybe fear, or excitement, ecstasy? Sure. How about a hormonal imbalance? Could that give you an impression? Could that be a, an inner voice, a guiding impulse that you feel? Yes. Insomnia, medication, even an upset stomach. Now, he's not being silly here. All of these things can give you an impression, or a temptation. He says, that's a quagmire of uncertainty. For, he says, in non-moral areas... Scripture doesn't give us any guideline for distinguishing the voice of the Spirit from the voice of the self or any other potential voice. It could be sat- satanic. And experience doesn't offer us any reliable means of identification. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the issue. He says, but that traditional view requires that the source of those impressions has to be identified if you're going to discern God's guidance. So he says, impressions are real. No doubt about it. He's not saying that they're not there. He says they are. There are impressions. Believers experience them. Yes, they do. Here's the catch impressions are not authoritative. Okay, let me say that one again. Impressions are real. Believers experience them, but impressions are not authoritative. Impressions are impressions. He said they're just impressions. And so he continues that chapter and he continues the book. It's a good sized book, over 400 pages. Uh, But it's so worthwhile. Greg Kokel has also explored this and come to the same conclusion that there's a wisdom model that works far better than this uh, traditional view. Now, I don't know. You may disagree with that. uh, But it's worth reading the material. I found that took a tremendous pressure off of me, a, a huge burden on my back, trying to figure out something that I thought was pretty difficult. It's like God's trying to communicate, but he's not successfully doing it. Really? is God unable to communicate? Uh, That says something about God. I think unfairly says something about him. Anyway, so I hope you might consider this book, Decision-Making in the Will of God, because it's so important. We make decisions for our whole lives. and I think we need to teach kids and grandkids this as well, but I'll get off the soapbox and won't preach on any more. It's just something I think you ought to take a look at. Thank you so much for your time and uh, see you in another podcast.